Hello and welcome to the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as a psychotherapist, hosting this podcast is a natural fit. Every week, I will invite you into my therapy room where I shall be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice, and they will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. At the end of each episode, I will be joined by my two, yes, two psychotherapist daughters who will reveal their thoughts and broader insights about my therapy session. It really is three therapists for the price of one. It's definitely worth a listen. I'm very happy to tell you this episode is sponsored by Athletic Greens. I started taking AG1 because I was sick and tired of scooping handfuls of vitamins and supplements that were really hard to swallow every morning. This has been a brilliant solution for me because with one scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, probiotics and adaptogens. While the greenness of it scared me at first, I now actually look forward to it every morning and have started to notice the dramatic improvement it has had on my energy levels. Now that is a win. It's partly because the quality of my sleep has seriously improved and so I feel much clearer mentally. AG1 is a small micro habit and I'm into micro habits with big benefits. It's the one thing you can do every single day to take great care of yourself. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash therapyworks. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash therapyworks to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And we could all do with nutritional insurance. So Ava Skalietska, I am delighted to invite you onto my podcast and talk to you about the experiences you've had this year since Ukraine has been at war and the diary you wrote and the book it's become you don't know what war is you're 12 years old do you want us to do you want to tell me a little bit about yourself so um, like before the war uh, before russian invasion um i was normal school girl born in kharkiv in the center of the city and firstly i attend kindergarten the school of happiness of chernovska and there is was like i had a lot of friends there and we and the teachers were so nice to us and they gave love and care about us and yet six years old age i could read i could write mm-hmm. and i was ready to school i love to study i studied excellent very very excellent so you're really you're a really good student and you love school and it sounds like from your book and in what you're saying it's like there was the life before 
Russia invaded Ukraine, which was a happy, probably not that straightforward life because you live with your grandmother and not your mother and father, but you loved school, you felt safe, you were at peace. And then your life literally turned upside down, was blown up by the invasion of Ukraine. So, Yeva, can you tell me about a challenge you're facing or have had to overcome? So, like, we just actually didn't believe that war could start. And there was rumours and a lot of news spoke about that, but we didn't believe that because we had relatives there and my father and my great-grandmother, they live in Russia, so we, like, we have a lot of relatives there. And there would be weird if Russia would invade Ukraine. And we speak, everybody speaks Ukrainian and Russian language. So it sounds like it couldn't have been a possibility that Russia, which was like a neighbor, but also like a family member when you have your father living in Russia and you speak Russian, that you couldn't believe that someone who's so close to you and you share so much with could be so devastatingly aggressive. Yeah, and for us it was so like we couldn't believe that. But my grandmother she came into bedroom and said that Putin started war. I couldn't believe that because I just felt in a super and I didn't know what to do. Like we we saw missiles from out like flying over the fields and we realized that it's like that's happening. But my grandma she was staying calm. She tried because if we if we were panicking, we could panic. It would be wars. So my grandma is trying to stay calm and make me calm. We, for two minutes, we just um, finished packing up and we realized that we need to leave flat. But nobody even did tell us what to do when war starts and war broke out. No, I mean, no one would know what to do. And I can hear that your grandmother, who's been this incredible, stabilizing, loving center of your life, although the missiles were blowing up around you and neither of you could quite believe what was happening. She had the calmness, I guess, and the sense to both enable you to calm down, but also to recognise that you needed to get out of your building because you had no knowledge, like none of us do, that what to do in war. Yeah, and, but we only knew that we needed to leave to, to leave our flat and go to the nearest basement, which were under our block flats. But there wasn't, like, basement for like, war. It just, like, was basement for water, like, supply, you know. And there was so dusty because there was sand. And it was, like, a lot of people was panicking, hearing first missiles. And actually, I realized it was war and just only negative emotions like fear and sorrow. Terror and fear and suffering. And you talked about it kind of um, going into your soul, a kind of fear that you had. And one of the ways that you instinctively used to calm yourself was to begin to write your diary. So tell me about writing your diary. What got you to do that and how did it help you? Firstly, when we came to shelter, uh, we with our friends started to play in dominoes and to just attract ourselves. And then I really wanted to go to the our apartment's back to take some stuff and to take my diary 
and to start write my emotions and everything that I lived through into diary because there was like tension inside me and tension in everybody's soul. For me, it was like I didn't want to discuss with everybody what was happening. It was like easier to to just write in, on the paper. And I really wanted that after 10, 20 years, I will able to read this and live through this emotionally. Yeah, it sounds like you did it for two reasons. One is that if you started telling everybody, everybody gets heightened senses of fear because emotions are contagious. So you, you kind of could talk to your friend, your diary, if you like, very privately. But also you wanted a record of what happened so that you could kind of go back and actually make sense of what I guess at the time felt that you could make no sense of at all and didn't seem real. For people listening, do you want to talk through this, the days, those critical days when you left Kharkiv and got a train and tell, tell us what happened and there were kind of moments of luck as well as terror? So we realised that, like in first day, that we we will be for a long time in the shelter. So we needed to be like ready and man they brought like sand to the windows just to not make home for people if there will be explosion near us. We slept uh, that night in the shelter that was really horrible. And scary and dark and damp and I thought like I won't sleep but I just fell asleep. So like I could sleep. And the next day I just woke up and I didn't want to go to our apartment's back, um, but actually my grandmother, she said like, okay, let's go. We need to, to eat something. We need to get shower. And I said, okay. And we went to our apartments. And some people like stay in their apartments and were sleeping there, which was for us really, really like scary because how they could in their apartments, uh, in, the, in the houses. Well, so I, I wondered about that, and I think it's happened quite often with devastating um, incidents like war or tsunamis that sometimes the greater fear for people is to leave home because home is their place of safety. But you and your granny were clear that your apartment wasn't safe, and yet other people, and still haven't left, have they? People have stayed because it's more frightening to leave than to stay. Yeah, a lot of people like were sleeping in the shelter. Some of them they stayed in the apartments, and we said like, "Oh my god, it's like crazy, and so scary." But then we back to our apartments, uh, and I was looking to window because you know that I wrote in diary our windows looking to towards the Russian border. Yeah. I was looking for like if it's some tanks or missiles, so and we back into shelter. But then we knew how how it was like terrifying it, and how situation became worse. Uh, we decided to leave Vietnam because we are in the most dangerous uh, district in the city. And we decided to move in, into place, the district where our friends lived. Because where you were was really on the Russian border. So you were in the most dangerous place near the border where where tanks and troops would come through and where missiles would hit you so the first kind of step was to get as far away from the border as you could yeah yeah 
And yeah, and so uh, we called taxi and fortunately it came. That's unbelievable a taxi came to get you. I just can't imagine war is broken and you can get a taxi. That's in itself pretty astonishing. It was like unless that it will come, but it was possible, but not as possible as before. Mm-hmm. But like we just got luck and taxi came and I just asked my granny what about clothes and she said no don't think about that just forget that uh, and I realized okay just we will go and then we saw a lot of queues into pharmacies into shops and we saw we saw one building and then when we arrived I just opened news and, and I and I saw this building that I saw normally it just burnt, yeah. burnt, and like I just couldn't believe that. And I'm so aware that you're 12, and there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of children younger than you, older than you, kind of victims of this war, and how how really brutalizing and traumatizing that is. Children should never see war. Yeah, and my friends, uh, we told like our neighbors that it's okay you can go there's like no missiles there's quiet in the city so you can go wherever you like to go they would wanted to go to Pisuchin but they started to packing up to bring all stuff Uh, but unfortunately they hadn't much time and they stopped uh, and they started like crazy bombings so that's one of the kind of wise instincts of your grandmother is that you have to survive, you have to stay alive. That's a bigger priority than stuff, than your clothes, than than your poor teddy bear that you had to leave behind. Yeah, and I realised that we don't need to think about clothes. We should think about lives. Yeah. But, like, I I didn't hear the sound there was in my district. I saw a lot of messages from my friends and a lot of our neighbours. There's, like, crazy bullying in our district. I'm going to interrupt our conversation for a message from our sponsor. It's been a really difficult and confusing year when it comes to our money. Really scary as well. And it won't come as a surprise that money is now one of the biggest causes of poor mental health in the UK. So if you're feeling anxious and worried or unsure, you are by no means alone. And that is where Octopus Money Coach comes in. They're a B Corps on a mission to help everyone feel good and safe about money and get all the finance help they need to create the life they really want. They'll answer any money questions you have and help you build a personal plan for everything you're saving for, whether you're looking to buy a new home, save for your family's education or anything in between. I can promise you that their coaches are super friendly and you can trust that they're always on your side. Search Octopus Money today to find out more and start saving today. And Yeva, given that this was such a terrible thing, what helped you survive? I think the faith in God. It's the love of God. God saved you. Yes, we just believe in him and he made a green road to survive. He helped to find a great people that uh, that we met in our way. So God set the path for you to meet great people that got you on your way. 
So what happened? How were you rescued? Yeah, so the worst day of the war in my life, I remember that the sixth day of the war when we got the news that our apartment destroyed. It was like something bomb bombed in my soul because like I spent there all my childhood. It was like great emotions. And I remember this is kitchen when I were doing like my homework and I was painting and when I got this news I just like just realized that something bumped inside of me. And I can feel that in my body as you're talking, this place where you have all of your memories of the kitchen of your bedroom of being with your friend all your life is bombed and it's like it blew it like it sits in your soul like a something that's been damaged inside you from seeing your your apartment bomb. Yeah and then in the evening, there was worse news because it was a normal evening. We just were sitting with my with my with my grandmother friends in the in the small room. My grandmother, she was making for us tea, and then she saw this huge drone, and she just fell into the floor because um, and we fell everybody. So you all fell to the floor when you saw the huge drone. Yes, and he was just dropping the bombs, and we didn't know where, where the bombs will fly, and, and we just realized that we are like near death, and any every minute, like it's just it, every minute, it's important, and every minute our life could stop. So I guess that is such a devastating experience, and also it changes you. You can't. It sounds like what you're saying is you recognize that what matters most in life isn't your things, it's that the, you and the people that you love live and survive. And that some of that is just down to random luck when terrible things happen. So frightening that you're on your own and no one is helping you. Yeah, I just continue to draw and something I just close in my soul. And then we just hope with my grandma and we said, like, if God would, would like to help to escape, we will go. If not, it will stay. And then, yeah, it's happened like miracle. After five minutes, uh, there was numbers of volunteers. Uh, we called them, and their reaction was so fast. And we we just sat on the on the car, and they came, and we just they helped to get to the Nipo. It was just like miracle. So that really felt like God was on your side. It was like a miracle because at one moment you had no hope at all and felt that you were going to be stuck there and then you prayed and the next moment these volunteers came and they took you to Nipo. Amazing. Yeah and then like our friends we, we came into Nipo with my friends. We're staying here in her family's house but we didn't want to leave Ukraine definitely. Uh, we just wanted to move more far from the hockey because they're so dangerous. And we knew that it was like hard to get to catch the train because there was so crowd in Dnipro. But actually, it happened that we even got to the the train and we just were moving to the West Ukraine. And there was like miracle because I said like if God will decide, we will go to the train. If not, we'll stay more days in Dnipro. And as you're remembering this now, telling me months later, what's happening in your body? Does it feel like you're talking about something that is a long time ago? Does it feel like distant? How is that in you now? You know, like, it's so, like, sad for me. 
because like I know that my normal life and my normal childhood they just destroyed by war and by Russian invasion um, and actually I'm so miss for my classmates and they miss and they so much miss for me because like we we spent six years uh, together so far. Although you are safe now I can feel there's a kind of deep sadness in you for all that has been lost your childhood your sense of safety and your close friends so I imagine you get kind of big waves of sadness even when you're like in Dublin now where you're safe yes and I realized that here is like peaceful sky and um, the sun is shining but I know that in Ukraine that's still war and my friends my classmates they're still in high keep and even some of them who left Kharkiv and they stay in Nipah, actually for them it's so painful just to know that it wouldn't be like before. Because I imagine you feel like split in two people. There's the you that is in Dublin now through the Channel 4 program. They got you into Dublin and a place of safety and you've got your own house with your granny and you've joined a school. But there's half of you that is in Ukraine kind of wanting to go back to safety and to your pre-war life. So I imagine you're grieving that version of your life, which even if the war ends, you've kind of, there's so much loss for you. Uh, yes, and I know that even war will end, there still will be dangerous in Ukraine because there's so dangerous bombings on the roads and and everything's damaged. Yeah in Kharkiv and I really really hope that war will end everything will be rebuilt and missiles will removed from everywhere yeah that you really want to go back to a peaceful country that doesn't have missiles and what I understand from you is in the devastation of war and the terror of it that's in your soul and really kind of still you suffer from that it's two things that have helped you and supported you. One is your faith and your belief in God. The other is the love and the stability of your grandmother. And then the third bit was this amazing amount of strangers that helped you, whether it was the Channel 4 programme or the, the um, volunteers that drove you to the west of Ukraine. And also when you prayed, there was this random luck that happened. So it feels like there's a a lot of combination of aspects that enabled you to get to safety. And there's like my this miracle happened and we met great people. Firstly we met a uh, Park Brian with his team and but for me like firstly when we arrived in Ushgorod and this person like cameraman he wanted to speak with me and uh, but like I wasn't ready because it was like big tension and I didn't, I was confused. I was like a little panic inside of me because I, I needed to realize what's happening around me. But like, and during this time when I was like working in the school, just, just trying to stay, my grandmother, she introduced my diary into to them and they just wanted to speak with me if it would be okay if like they will make reports and i'll read some of my pages in diary even in russian they will they would like to translate it it would be fine and then like we asked them to help us and i wanted to go to england because that was like my dream and 
I really, really wanted to study in Oxford University and I wanted to study in Oxford High School. But uh, unfortunately, the visa, visa to Great Britain, we couldn't, we couldn't go there. But my grandmother, she had a passport. I hadn't any like documents from my parents. So it's, it was easier to go to Ireland. And Ireland was like better because everybody speaks uh, English there. So if people are listening, you know, who, as you said, you in the title, you don't know what war is. What's the message that you want them to learn from you about what war is for a 12-year-old? So, like, for me, it was what I realised and we realised that nothing can be more expensive than life. No cars, no money, no gold, nothing. Just life. And I realize that a lot of people uh, don't not appreciate a peaceful sky and they don't appreciate the sun shining. But now here, I appreciate that in one moment it could just end. And we believe in God and that's most important. Yeah. And we made, uh, met a lot of people, great people. And my, Michael Mapugo, he made powerful forward to my book, which for me is big honor. And Kira Knightley, she voiced, uh, she voiced my book, and that's that's miracle. And my literature agent, she's amazing. So we need to believe in miracles. Yes, I mean I really get what you're saying. That those of us that live in peaceful countries sometimes we take it for granted and we worry too much about things that don't matter, like money or clothes, or we can get kind of obsessed with all sorts of things to do with money and status or even politics. And I think what you're saying is that really being alive and being kind to each other and believing that good things can happen, that miracles can happen, is what gives you hope. And hope, as well as faith, is how you survive. Well, it's lovely meeting you, and it is a miracle that you're in Dublin. What Just tell me... Briefly, how how do you manage psychologically the split between hearing the news that's coming out of Ukraine and yet being a 12-year-old schoolgirl in Dublin? So, like, when we came to Ireland, that was really hard to adopt here and to, like, realise that here's another life and that here's, like, no one understands what war is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here's people even don't understand even they didn't understand what war is like they just were trying to support us to bring to beautiful places to enjoy nature enjoy dublin's parks a lot of people here it's so kind so that helps yeah and a lot of like when in the second day of uh, came to ireland a lot of neighbors like they came to catherine's house and and they just welcomed us. And even my grandmother, she didn't understand, like, English. But she just felt, she, she felt that sincere from them. And it's helped even a little bit. It does help. Does your grandmother speak any English now? Um, no. <laughs> so you're her translator. But one of the things you said in the book is that you hate the word refugee. Do you want to tell me about that? Because I I had a refugee client who hated the word refugee. She felt it was kind of tainted and that people would look down on you as an object rather than as a human being. Yeah, I don't actually like this war because 
I really ashamed to just say that like I lost my home. I like nowhere to go. I and actually I need to start a new life here. And it's really hard to say that that we lose everything that in Ukraine. Yeah, you really lost everything. It's so tough that you feel ashamed when this was circumstances over which you had no control. Yeah, I know. So, Yeva, I guess, do you watch the news every day from Ukraine? Does that... Yeah, yeah, we, we, we watch every time news. And I'm reading and we're watching. And that's not so good. No, that must be very um, distressing, very disturbing. I imagine you switch in and out of, like, when you watch the news, you feel very sad. And then you kind of switch into being a schoolgirl and you go to school and you put it at the back of your mind so it comes sort of back and forth in you, I guess. Have you had any professional psychological support? You, or maybe you haven't needed it? No, no, I haven't. So, Yeva, good luck with the book. I really hope it spreads the word about what war is and that it also helps you build your new life in Dublin. And I feel very touched by listening to you and sort of seeing the, the calm that you feel, but also knowing that in your soul something has changed, the war is in you and it will forever change you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. I am going to start by saying this is a demonstration of me really not having a good day as a therapist. I felt kind of disconnected and clunky and that sort of thing that I wasn't being, I was doing, I was making faces because she was amazing and she had so many interesting and fascinating and extraordinary things to say about something that is so devastating. So all therapists have bad days. Okay, so first of all, the good thing is, is that even if you felt like you were having a bad day, even your bad day is okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I, it doesn't come across, but I did have as my very first question of, what was it like for mum to do interview, question mark, which makes me think that I didn't at all think you were bad, but I, I think I did pick up that there was something that was uncomfortable for you. I wondered if it was the language barrier or something. I mean, she obviously spoke incredible English, but I wondered if you weren't totally sure that she was understanding or whether it was her age or... I was just curious about what it was that made it uncomfortable for you. I think there were quite a lot of things. And I think from people who are listening to this perspective, you know, every lens of difference between two people is a lens where you can narrow the connection with each other. Mm. And I think one of it was that talking about war, talking about the Ukraine, and really me in some way never being able to, like the title of her book, You Don't Know What War Is. 
I think I felt in my body that I couldn't know what war was. And I also felt like a 12-year-old wasn't my area of expertise. Mm. So I think I, I just kept on pushing rather than being. You see people all the time that you do not know what their experience is like. You've experienced these horrendous, traumatic experiences that may not have been war, but they're not experiences that you have had. Mm -hmm. And yet you are still able to really connect with them. So maybe it was just a day and her age. I did think to myself, what would I do in that situation if I had not an interview, but a 12-year-old Ukrainian refugee client. And I think what was so interesting about her is that obviously her experience has been very traumatic. And yet her instinct is to do all the things that help when somebody, a child or an adult has experienced trauma. So she has created a narrative for herself around why it happened. Like she's created a narrative in the form of a book. She's also found meaning through her very deep belief in God, and that's really important in trauma work. She's found a way to self-regulate. She talked about being in nature and that really helping her. She's got consistency and routine in going to school and with the safe base of her grandmother. And so although she said she hasn't had any therapeutic intervention at all, she's doing all of the things that probably a therapist would do with her anyway. And she's sort of differentiating between this was my life then and this is now. And that's also really important in trauma work. I mean, obviously, I think her experience is so huge. It's a lifelong process to get to terms with that. But I did think sort of extraordinary that she was just doing all those things that as a therapist, I would encourage her to do anyway. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, Em, how you picked up on all those themes that are a part of trauma work about trying to reconnect. When you've gone through a traumatic experience, it can be so isolating because it feels like no one can relate. Even if there are other people out there who've had similar experiences, it can be such a lonely experience, especially that experience of being in another country, not your native language. And it seems like she is really learning to to try and bridge that story, like, back and forth, back and forth. And that's often what we, when you do also with trauma work is trying to process the experience and then you need to bring yourself back into a safe space, don't you? Mm. And often it's hard to do therapeutic work until you are somewhere safe. Safety is so important in having the resources to be able to process what has happened and have a sense of it being in the past. Absolutely. So I worked with lots of Syrian refugees when I worked in America. And this is a slight tangent, but I think... It's quite fascinating. So the American system of becoming a refugee through war in America is that you go through this sort of almost two-year process of security checks, and then they pay for your flight to America, but you have to pay them back over time, Gosh. firstly, which is insane. Exactly. Mm. If you think of a Syrian family... Arriving with nothing. Arriving with nothing. And then you sort of set up because you're sort of connected to various charities across the US. You don't know where you're going unless you have a connection to somebody already in the US. But then as part of the arrival process, you're sort of set up with an apartment, which may or may not be nice. But when you first arrive and you first arrive in your new apartment, part of the Welcome to America process is that someone will cook you a meal from your home country. So if you are from Syria, someone will be in your apartment to meet you and cook you a Syrian meal. 
as a like welcome to America. How fascinating. And so it's this extraordinary juxtaposition of like, yes, actually we're going to make this very hard for you because being in America as an immigrant is incredibly difficult. But hello, <laughs> have a meal. And it's like this sort of huge welcome. And yet also life is going to be very hard. And don't think that you're here on a free pass because we expect you to pay for your plane ticket. That is extraordinary. It's bringing to mind that relatively recently, my husband, as you know, regained German citizenship, having his family, having had to flee Germany during the war. And there was this really emotional process that we weren't expecting at all. We were expecting a kind of very official come to a desk, sign something process. And instead they took us to a cafe <laughs> and the woman who was doing the process stood up and did this formal apology uh, for the Holocaust and on behalf of Germany and said, we're so glad and happy that you are willing to be a member of our country again. So moving though. And me and Jake completely unexpectedly started welling up <laughs> and then she bought us all tea and cake. It was surprisingly a healing acknowledgement, isn't it? it? To some extent, it's acknowledgement that can be so powerful, even though it's words, when it's done with real feeling, that your experience is validated. Yeah, very moving. Uh, even even intergenerationally, I think it can, it can be really healing. And I think also what, what that speaks to is sort of me thinking about these Syrian refugees, you talking about that process of, of someone apologising for something that happened years ago, is that these events where you are removed from your country and are transplanted in another country, that is not a one-off thing. That goes down generations, right? Like this was how mm. two, three generations ago for your husband's family and mm. the families that I worked with, this will still be impacting them in two or three or four or five. It's part of their history. Mm. And I think that what I take from what you're both saying is, and I think it links to the meal um, is that we want quick fixes. We want to sort people out and give them an immediate feel-good experience. And so cooking somebody a meal makes you feel good and that, like you're welcoming them. And what it doesn't acknowledge, you know, like Yevi say, saying, she doesn't like the word refugee. And I had a, a Syrian client um, who didn't like the word refugee because it felt like it was condescending. And she wanted to be known as her name and as a young woman and a person in the world, not this label of refugee where you're outsider and not wanted and not welcome. But that the complexity of these absolutely massive events of blowing your life up and literally blowing your country up, which I couldn't even listen to, I think, probably. You know, I don't think I asked her about this terrible bombing and the noise and the smell because I probably couldn't bear to think about it. But the complexity of that living loss now, that she's in a different country with a different language, away from all of her friends, her mood being dependent on the news every day, whether it, the war, it's worse or, or not quite as bad, will affect her for the rest of her life and her relationships and her children, and as Em is saying, her children's lives. And I don't think the transgenerational process of events live so long in us, longer than we give them credit for. And what feels very powerful about Yeva, and I think something that can be taken in a generalised way, writing a journal, making a narrative, like 
you're talking about, M. Finding meaning by believing in God. Having the safe place of a person, I think, that was the model for her of calm, making good decisions, not going kind of frantically to get stuff, but to get safe. All of those things really support you in the trauma of it, but also support you to manage it in the weeks and months and years ahead. Yeah, it's thinking about those sort of resilience factors, isn't it, over time. When those traumatic experiences happening, you're in survival mode, aren't you? But those factors of being able to make meaning afterwards and be able to reconfigure your view of the world so that they, it can accommodate those kind of experiences and obviously more profound the loss and Yeva's loss was profound the more time it takes to integrate that experience into your sort of worldview and I also think and this is partly personal experience but grieving often feels like it comes in layers to me you can do one layers for a period of time and then something happens and it shifts and you can process it in a different way and it goes down into another layer and I you know in that intergenerational way that's just more layers that you're getting to that maybe can't be tolerated or, or felt by that generation, but the next generation maybe can can process it. And that those kind of journaling helps that processing. And I think what I like about this idea of layers and Emily talking about this passes down in generations is it takes the onus away from fixing ourselves, this idea that we we kind of sort ourselves out, but more goes to that you move in and out of these things and find a way of living with them and support yourself through the difficult aspects of it and then let yourself embrace and take pleasure in the things that you're having a good time with rather than this idea that you get over something and you can forget and move on. But there are layers and layers that we are unexpected that we don't have control of. And so the more support we put in our days and in our lives and in our connection with ourselves and others, then that enables us to withstand these layers as they pop up and disturb us. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's definitely true in terms of the process of grieving and trauma and allowing yourself to feel the good when you feel it, as well as let the bad kind of go through you. I think the idea that something that I've experienced is going to pass down through generations is one that I personally find terrifying. And I haven't ever experienced anything awful. And yet I still am already like worried about my own anxieties. And I am already scared of the stuff that I am passing on to my children inadvertently. And so I, I wonder about if you have experienced really something really traumatic, whether you're also carrying fear around, like, how am I going to protect my children? I mean, not Yeva, obviously, she's only 12, but other people. Like, how do I protect my children from something that I've experienced? And mm. I think the answer is you can't. <laughs> but I think what you can do is have awareness of it and have awareness of yourself and where you are in that. And that is going to be the first step to a resiliency, in a way, of protecting then future generations from being negatively impacted. Not that they won't be impacted, but that I think you can protect them from carrying your trauma. And awareness really helps. And I think the other thing is that nothing is inevitable. You know, it's an iterative process of the genes that you're born with, the experiences you have, the secure and secure attachment in your initial relationships and luck. So there's so many aspects that play and that they play out iteratively. 
And so to think that we can, again, this idea we can fix ourselves or tidy ourselves to make it, make sure that we don't pass things down is a sort of misunderstanding, really. So thank you, Sophie and Anne. We need to leave it there. And a particular thank you to Yeva for being such an amazing guest on our podcast. And those of you that are listening, if you think this is a useful podcast to share to your friends and family, do pass it on. And also do subscribe, rate and review so other people can find it. Until next week, thank you. Bye. Bye.